Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down there at the well. It was about noon. The woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you do not even have a bucket, and the cistern is deep. Where then can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this cistern and drank from it himself with his children and his flocks? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I shall give will never thirst. The water I shall give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered and said to her, him, I, have, I do not have a husband. Jesus answered her, You are right in saying, I do not have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you people say that the place to worship is Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the hour is coming, and you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not understand. We worship what we understand, because salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, and indeed the Father seeks such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one speaking to, with you. At that moment, his disciples returned and were amazed that he was talking with a woman. But still no one said, what are you looking for? Or why are you talking with her? The woman left her water jar and went to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I've done. Could he possibly be the Christ? Then they went to the town and came to her. Meanwhile, the disciples urged her, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, Could someone have brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say, in four months, Do you not say, in four months the harvest will be here? I tell you, look up and see the fields ripe for the harvest. The reaper is already receiving payment and gathering crops for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For here the saying is verified, the one who sows and another reaps. I send you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the work, and you are sharing the fruits of their work. Many of the Samaritans of that town began to believe in him because the word of the woman who testified, He told me everything I have done. When the Samaritan came to him, 
they invited him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. Many more began to believe in him because of his word. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe because of your word, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know what, that this is truly the Savior of the world. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus. That was a long one, uh, almost four and a half minutes. So uh, nobody's timing, but I am. So I record, record the homily, but I always like to start with the gospel because I think the gospel is more important than my homily, to be quite honest. And I think that's a good reminder for us always is that uh, mass is not, depending on how good or bad it is, depending on how well the homily is or how much you understand or anything of that sort, uh, the Mass is, is fruitful because we're here praying before the Lord and because the sacraments are here and because the church is here. So I can sometimes say, I hope that you take something from what I say, but that's not the most important part. All right. So today, the Samaritan woman, we hear about the Samaritan woman. Now, I want to point out one thing, which hopefully you already know, but uh, if you caught at the very beginning, Jesus uh, was there at about noon. Now, noon in the desert is the hottest part of the day. So normally, that's kind of where siestas come from, because normally you don't want to do anything when it's really hot out. And the only time when you do something when it's really hot out is when you have to, okay? So you want to avoid that at any cost. Well, here, Jesus is traveling, so he's at the well, he's waiting. They went to go get some stuff. And this woman comes out to draw water. She's the only one. Why is she the only one? She's the only one because nobody else wants to do it at that time. So why is she going out to the well at that time? Most likely, it's because she was an outcast. Most likely because she didn't want to go when all the other women go in the morning or the evening when it's cooler out. She didn't want to go at those times because she didn't want to hear all the chatter and everything else that was probably spoken about her and about how, and she didn't have to want to see their faces or uh, to get pushed out. And so instead, she just avoids it, and she goes at noon. So we know that this is a woman who's an outcast, and yet Jesus talks to her. Not only, so he's breaking many rules. One, he's talking to a woman by himself. Second, he's talking to a Samaritan, and he's a Jew, and they're uh, different. They're kind of at odds with each other. And then he's talking to somebody who he knows is an outcast of the community, most likely because of her sins, most likely because she is on her fifth husband. And she, he talks to her anyways. What does that tell us? I'd like to reference the second reading today, which I think, uh, this, specifically the second paragraph, is just beautiful and I think gives our disposition that we need to always have when we approach Jesus. How do we approach Jesus? A lot of us approach Jesus in a transactional way. We uh, learn this often as children. We uh, want to talk to our parents when good things happen, right? Oh, I got an A on this test. Hey, isn't this great? But when we get an F on the test, what do we do? We hide, okay? We don't want to talk to our parents. We don't want to show anybody. We want to run away. And we do that with shame often. And we do that with God as well because we think that our love is conditional. Now, 
Uh, parents, I know that you still love your children whether they get an A or an F, okay, right? Uh, they, they, they love children. They love you no matter what. But we don't always experience that. Partly because parents have to do discipline and other things and, and corrective because they want you to be good, productive human beings, okay? But sometimes that's a difficult role. And so we start to kind of experience at times that our love, because we think that discipline and other things are associated with love. Oh, I'm disciplined. My parents must not love me. No, they're disciplining you because they love you. Okay? And so it's important, even when we correct children, to be always important. I love you, and I'm doing this because I love you. Okay? But even so, uh, we often experience a transitional love with our parents, hopefully, is the most pure. But with our friends, we experience transactional love. Uh, we experience transactional love with every, uh, most of the, the people that we interact with. God's love is different. God's love is perfectly pure. And God's love is unconditional. I just want to, to remind you, God's love is unconditional. Okay? No condition whatsoever. God loves you. And what is it? how do we know that? Well, we know that partly from the second reading today. We say that hope does not disappoint. God's, because God, love of God has been poured out into our hearts, okay? So we know that. He says, it's difficult for one to die for a just person. We kind of think about this in a transitional way. We, we have beautiful stories in the military of people who have laid down their lives, maybe received the Medal of Honor, and they often do it. Why do they die? Well, they die because they love their brothers and sisters around them, okay? And they lay down their life because they think that the people around them are worth dying for. But what about if you didn't think that the people around you were worth dying for? What about if you knew that they were all scumbags? What about if they were the enemy? Would you die for the enemy? Well, no. You know, we wouldn't do that. And even not everyone's able to die for a just person around us. But God shows his love for us. God proves his love for us that while we are still sinners, he died for us. A lot of the time we wait to approach God until we've got our life all figured out. We say, well, let me figure out my life. Let me get it all straightened. Let me figure it all out. And now I'll come to God. The problem is is with that is that God doesn't want to wait. He knows our life is messed up. He knows that we're sinners. He knows what we do, and yet he still loves us. It's one of my favorite parts of the confessional, is that people come and they bear all of these, all this shame and sorrow for their sin, and they've, they've held it in, and they think, well, if somebody knew what kind of person I was, they wouldn't love me. We do this sometimes with family, or maybe with our parents. We say, well, if they really knew what I did, they wouldn't love me. If my friends really knew what I was like, they wouldn't love me. If God really knew what I was like, I would then know that he, he doesn't love me. This is the lie that we hear to ourselves. Now, sometimes I can't speak for your friends, okay? Some friends are good friends. Some friends aren't. So there are some friends who maybe won't like you if you tell them certain things. A good friend will love you, even uh, knowing Uh, some ways in which you fail. God proves his love by knowing all of your sin and knowing who you are and still being willing to die for you. 
In the confessional, I get to hear the sins and I speak in behalf of Christ. I act in persona Christi and Jesus is given the power and authority to bind and loosen sins to the church and the church gives it to the priests. And I am able to hear people's sins and to be able to say, you know what? God loves you. And my favorite is when somebody who's come back to confession after quite a few years, 20 or 30 or 40 years, I'm like, Father, it's been a really long time. I'm really sorry. I just have all these sins. I feel so bad about them. I know that you can't love me after I tell you these things. And I say, no, no, no. The angels rejoice. The angels are rejoicing. And I am rejoicing today because you came back. You came back and were willing to encounter the Lord and to be able to allow him to love you. To be able to look at your sins, to be able to know your sins, and to be able to say, God loves you. And so, when we go to the confessional, it's not a place of shame. It's not a place where we hand out our sins so that we can try to justify ourselves, or, or a place um, where we get to be yelled at. Okay, that's not the place there. The confessional is a place where God encounters us like he countered this Samaritan woman, where he told her her own sins. Yes, you have five husbands and the one that you're with isn't your husband. But I'm still asking you for a drink. I know that about you and I still love you. I still want good things for you. And isn't that absolutely countercultural? To our culture at times today. You know, we're, we're easy at forgiving away easy things. But what about those really hard things? Are we willing to love people who want to change their life? Who, who mess up and want to change again? Jesus Christ loves us not while we were righteous. In fact, he came not for the righteous, but for sinners. So hopefully we are sinners. Because otherwise he didn't come for us. If we're righteous, if we're all good, if we don't need a savior, then he didn't come for us. But we're all sinners in need of a Savior. He came to die die for us while we were yet sinners. And and that is a fundamental disposition that we need to do every single time that we approach God. Don't run away from Him because of your sin. Don't say, well, God can't love me if He knows. Oh, I can't talk to God. I can't pray because my sin is too great. No, 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 no. The greater the sin the more, the more that sin abounds, the more that grace abounds. Not so that we can sin, okay? St. Paul says that, okay? St. Paul says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Not so that we can sin, but to know that God loves us in the midst of it. And so, it, you know, we have to be true to ourselves. We have to understand and encounter the reality of the life around us, of who we are and who God is to be able to continue to grow. And I pray you throughout this Lent, this Lent is always a great time to be able to go to confession, to be able to do a good examination of conscience and to be able to say, God, I've failed in these ways and I want, I've concretely failed in these ways and now I'm going to concretely uh, confess them. And I'm going to overcome my pride and my shame that says that if I say this to the priest, that he won't love me anymore. Guess what? One of the things I keep on telling people is that uh, if you're afraid of me remembering your sins in the confessional, I have a really bad memory. So really bad. Now, the best way if, you're, if you don't want to confess to me is to go to another priest who won't see you. That's a great way. I've used that method plenty of times, okay? Go to a random priest, random church. Those are the best times to be able to go to confession. 
But uh, one of the things that you have an advantage of me for at least uh, the next two months is that I have a terrible memory. I don't remember anything, all right? Uh, so again, it's nothing in the confessional is something that I bring out. In fact, if I bring it out, if I tell anyone, I would actually get removed from the priesthood, okay? So that's how serious we take it. And quite frankly, I'm just not going to remember, okay? Go behind the screen. I'm not going to remember. Uh, but it's important for us and it's necessary for us to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with God. And we need to do that through the sacrament of reconciliation because in the sacrament of reconciliation, we can say concretely, I am sorry for these things that I have concretely done. So I'm making a concrete act of restitution, turning away from sin and saying, I'm not going to let pride. I'm going to humble myself by confessing these sins. And then... The priest is able to say, you are loved. You are loved. Go and sin no more. And with that type of an understanding of the love of God who died for us while we were sinners is where we can go and tell about the amazing mercy and the power of Jesus Christ in our life.